This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So good afternoon, everyone. I'm Giovanni Singleton, Lunch Pums Coordinator. Thank you all for being here today. Um, first, I'd like to invite you to sign up on our email list, which is over on the librarian's desk. Um, also, if you're on Facebook, do log on and become our friend. Um, on our website, lunchpoems.berkeley.edu, you can view this reading and our past readings as webcasts. And also, um, check out our playlist on YouTube. And now, please welcome um, Robert Hass, director of Lunch Poems, who will introduce today's guest, Robin Robertson. Thank you. Thanks, Giovanni. Thank you all for being here um, since our last uh, Thursday reading. Two poets um, uh, have died that I felt personally attached to, Ron Lowenson, my colleague in the English department who was the youngest poet to be included in the historic Donald Allen anthology, um, died about three w- weeks ago, poet and novelist and a teacher in the English department at this university for 30 years, and will be stay tuned for something for that. The other is my dear friend, friend to many people here. I know Galway Cannell, who died last Tuesday, a week ago Tuesday, of uh, leukemia in his home in Sheffield, Vermont, with his wife and his two children, Fergus and Maud, who he wrote about so beautifully, and his poems beside him. And we'll also be doing something about that. Today, we get to celebrate poetry. We're very lucky to have Robin Robertson here. Um, the One of the main literary prizes in the in the in the British Isles is the Forward Prize, and they give a prize for the best book, the best first book, and the best poem. And Robin, I think, is the only poet to have won all three prizes. Um, he's much honored, and um, and he has a new American selected poems out, which is available right there. He was born in the north, on the northeast coast of Scotland. The California connection would be John Muir, found his way from that stony place to another stony place, Yosemite, that he wrote about. And it's w- worth mentioning the connection because Robin Robertson writes like a flint napper. He writes like some, if, if Seamus Heaney digs Pete, Robin break stone. You can smell stone and salt water in his early poems. He's been described as an heir to the tradition of Ted Hughes and Seamus Heaney in those early poems and uh, just high company and um, is pretty accurate. His first book, Painted Field, was published in the... I, I can't read the dates here, so I'm not going to worry about that. Followed by Slow Air. Swallowed followed by a book called, I said swallowed because the book is called Swithering. (laughs) To swither, as he explains in the book, means to be in anxious indecision. Um, 
And then uh, a really surprising and spectacular book, The Deleted World, is, uh, is a book of translations and versions of the poems of the great Swedish poet Thomas Tranströmer, followed by The Wrecking Light, followed by, um, in America, this book, Sailing the Forest. Um, his materials early on are... Uh, our landscape, but the writing is so fiercely uh, made that it feels like it's also about writing, laying down words. Gary Snyder's poem, Lay Down These Words Before the Mind, he says in Rip Rap on the slip, Slick Slope of Metaphysics, he says, put me in mind of those poems. A thing about Robin's poems, he was interested in, in Celtic mythology, he's interested in Mediterranean mythology, in later poems, he's been writing spectacular poems, re- revising some of the stories of, in the Greek idyls of stories of gods, of Ovidian transformations in sexuality. It gives you a sense that he's a poet who's achieved so much and is really just growing, just growing and changing in powerful ways. The book, this book, I'd read the poems, volumes individually, but this book is really quite thrilling. He's also translated two plays of Euripides. The stoniness of Greek drama also would be involved. And the newest one, which I thought I was going to say is forthcoming, is here, translation of the Bacchae. There's a single play that tracks the history of sensibility toward Greek tragedy in in the literature. It's it's the Bacchae from Gilbert Murray's Track. Did Ted Hughes do a Bacchae? It's a, it's a Hughes subject. Anyway, another very exciting event. I'm going to shut up. His being here is a very exciting event. Please welcome Robin Robertson. I'm going to be a grave disappointment to you all after that. I've just uh, come from a place with no weather, um, L.A. Um, So I'm going to try and uh, correct all that. This is is where I'm from. Aberdeen. The grey sea turns in its sleep, disturbing seagulls from the green rock. We watched the long collapse, the black drop and frothing of the toppled wave, looked out on the dark that goes to Norway. We lay all night in an open boat that rocked by the harbour wall, listening to the tires creak at the stone quay, trying to keep time, till the night fishers came in their ark, their lap of light, the fat slap of waves, the waters sway, the water mullioned with light. The sifting rain Italic rain, the smur that drifted down for days, the sleet, your hair full of hail as if sown there. 
In the damp sheets we left each other sea gifts, watermarks, long lost now in all these years of the riptide swell and trawl. All night the feeding storm banked up the streets and houses. In the morning the sky was yellow, the frost ringing. The grey sea turns in its sleep, disturbing seagulls from the green rock. I've been uh, enjoying your American autumn in various places uh, this past week. And um, I started off in New England, um, but uh, that's their idea of fall is very different from yours. Um, so, anyway, I thought I'd read um, a translation of a, an early poem by Rilke called Herbst, which means autumn, but I've translated as fall. I knew that he'd written it soon after arriving in Paris in 1902, but it was only much, much later uh, when I was when the poem had been published and I was doing some research um, to explain it, um, that I discovered that Rilke, and this was after the Twin Towers had gone down, um, that Rilke had, had written it on the 11th of September. Fall. The leaves are falling, falling from trees in dying gardens far above us, as if their slow freefall was the sky declining. And tonight this heavy earth is falling away from all the other stars, drawing into silence. We are all falling now. My hand, my heart, stall and drift in darkness, seesawing down. And we still believe there is one who sifts and holds the leaves, the lives of all those softly falling. Now, I've been um, entertaining myself over the past four or five years writing um, invented Scots folk narratives. <laughs> nice to have an interest. Um, these stories are everyday tales of there's that share some common thematic ground with the Celtic folk tradition. So they are um, stories of murder, rape, madness, congenital malformation, <laughs> and selkies, uh, seals turning into humans and humans turning into seals. Um, this is the first. One I wrote. It's called By Clacken Bridge. I remember the girl with the hair lip down by Clacken Bridge, cutting up fish to see how they worked. By morning's end, her nails were black red, her hands all sequined silver. She unpuzzled rabbits to a rickle of bones, dipped into a dormouse for the pip of its heart. She'd open everything, that girl. 
They say they found wax dolls in her wall, puppets full of human hair, but I'd say they're wrong. What's true is that the blacksmith's son, the simpleton, came down here once and fathomed her, claimed she licked him clean as a whistle. I remember the tiny stars of her hands around her belly as it grew and grew, and how, after a year, nothing came. How she said it was still there, inside her, a stone baby. And how I saw her wrists bangled with scars, and those hands flittering at her throat to the plectrum of bone she'd hung there. As to what happened to the blacksmith's boy, no one knows, and I'll keep my tongue. Last thing I heard, the starlings had started to mimic her crying, and she'd found how to fly. Now, I've been noticing a rather worrying development in my reading. Um, I used to have... I still do have two sections. There's a carnality section and a mortality section. Um, It used to be that the carnality section would just go on and on and on, and there was a tiny little mortality coda. But things have flipped around. But because this is a selected poems, I'm able to draw on happier times. So this is... This is the brief, uh, the brief uh, early section um, for anybody who's feeling peckish. This is a, uh, a poem called Artichoke. The nubbed leaves come away in a tease of green, thinning down to the membrane, the quick purpled beginnings of the male Then the slow hairs of the heart, the choke that guards its trophy, its vegetable goblet. The meat of it lies displayed, upended, al dente, the stub root aching in its oil. For reasons I didn't understand at the time, and I still can't fathom now, I was commissioned to um, write a poem about a locksmith. So I did uh, some research. um, It's a fair bit of research, um, which was quite interesting, but I couldn't really make anything of it. But I started thinking of of how a poem is a little bit like um, a lock, but... Uh, this kind of secret machine. Um, so that took me a bit further. Um, but in the end, I just wrote a poem that I enjoyed. But it does have some vestigial um, traces of the earlier research. It's called Wedding the Locksmith's Daughter. The slow-grained slide to embed the blade of the key is a sheathing a gliding on graphite, pushing inside to find the ribs of the lock. Sunk home, the true key slots to its matrix, geared, tight-fitting, 
they turn together, shooting the spring lock, throwing the bolt. Dactyls, iambics, the clinch of words, the hidden couplings in the cased machine, a chime of sound on sound, the way the sung note snibs on meaning and holds. The lines engage and marry now, their bells are keeping time. The church doors close and open underground. I'll just read one more um, from the past. Um, This is called Dream of the Huntress. I wish I had dreams like this again. It is always the same. She is standing over me in the forest clearing, a dab of blood on her cheek from a rabbit or a deer. I am aware of nothing but my mutinous flesh and the traps of desire sent to test it. Her bare arms, bare shoulders, her loosened hair, the hard, high breasts, and under a belt of knives and fish lures, her undressed wound. Every night the same, the slashed fetlock, the buckling under. I wake in her body, broken, like a gun. But in the end, all you get is a room in the west of Ireland and a week of rain. Exposure. Rain, you said, is silence turned up high. It has been raining now for days. Even when it stops, there is still the sound of rain water laboring to find some way into the ground. We lie in grim embrace, these two halves trying to be whole, straining for this break in the static, in the white noise that was rain falling all day and all through the sheeted night. Silence is rain with the sound turned down, and I stare out now on a clear view of something left out on the line. A life, snagged there, drenched, shrunken, unrecognizably mine. And if it's not rain, it's snow. This is a poem that's set on the first day of a new year. It happens to be Ireland, and it's, it's uh, after a heavy fall of snow. The park drunk. He opens his eyes to a hard frost, the morning's soft amnesia of snow. The thorned stems of gorse are starred crystal, each bud like a candied fruit, its yellow picked out and lit by the low pulse of blood orange riding in the eastern trees. What the snow has furred 
to silence, uniformity, frost amplifies, makes singular, giving every form a sound, an edge, as if frost wants to know what snow tries to forget. And so he drinks for winter, for the coming year, to open all the beautiful tiny doors in their crackler of frost. And he drinks like the snow falling, trying to close the biggest door of all. That wasn't, um, I hasten to add, autobiographical. Uh, But the next two are... um, We're firmly now, just to keep you posted, in the mortality section. (laughs) This is about my father. Sometimes I'd... Oh, it's called uh, Ghost of a Garden. It's always good to give the title, isn't it? Ghost of a Garden. Sometimes I discover I have gone downstairs, crossed the grass and found myself in here, the tool shed, caught in a lash of brambles, bindweed and tall ivied trees like pipe cleaners. It looks out vacantly on a garden run to seed, the lost tennis court grown over benches, a sunken barbecue snagged with blown roses. The courtyard walls are full of holes the swallows try to sew in and out of them like open doors. In the corner of the shed, my father is weeping, and I cannot help him because he is dead. And... This is about the loss of a daughter, not, I'm happy to say, the death, but um, it's, the, it's that point, that moment when a father knows his child is no longer really a child. This is set on a beach on the west coast of Ireland at the end of the summer, at the end of this particular childhood. Donegal. Ardent on the beach at Rosnala on the last day of summer, you ran through the shallows, throwing off shoes and shirt and towel like the seasons, the city's years, all caught in my arms as I ploughed on behind you, guardian still of dry clothes, of this little heart, not quite thirteen, Breasting the waves and calling back to me to join you, swimming in the Atlantic on the last day of summer. I saw a man in the shallows with his hands full of clothes, full of all the years, and his daughter going where he knew he could not follow. Many years ago, I had um, had a, an operation to correct um, a congenital heart murmur. Um, this involved 
powerful anesthesia and four hours of surgery to implant a mechanical aortic valve. Uh, I'm only telling you this so you understand the poem, OK? I'm, this is not uh, therapy. Um, <laughs> quite apart from all that indignity, um, the, the blood circulates outside of the body for some considerable time. And in some cases, this can cause um, a condition called pump head, um, which is a, a sort of psychological disassociation, um, an emotional derangement, which it, I use to excuse everything. Um, this is called, this is about the process, it's called the halving. General anesthesia, a median sternotomy achieved by sternal saw. The ribs held aghast by retractor. The tubes and cannulae drawing the blood to the reservoir and its bubbler. The struggling aorta cross-clamped. The heart chilled and stopped and left to dry. The incompetent bicuspid valve excised. The new one, a carbon-coated disc housed expensively in a cage of tantalum, is broken from its sterile pouch, then heavily implanted into the native heart, bolstered, seated with sutures. The aorta freed, the heart restarted. The blood allowed back after its time abroad, circulating in the machine. The rib spreader relaxed and the plumbing removed. The breastbone lashed with sternal wires. The incision closed. Four hours I'd been away, out of my body, made to die, then jerked back to the world. The distractions of delirium came and went, and then, as the morphine drained, I was left with a split chest that ground and grated on itself. Over the pain, a blackness rose and swelled. Pump head is what some call it. Debris from the bypass machine migrating to the brain. But it felt more interesting than that. Halved and unhelmed, I have been away, I said to the ceiling, and now I am not myself. Of course, like everything else, heart surgery has its funny side, and some time after this operation, um, in the middle of the night, the six-inch wound in my chest uh, opened up, which was Annoying for all sorts of reasons. Um, mostly because it was a Saturday night and I was living then in Brixton in South London and um, the only casualty department um, uh, that was open there was uh, famous now and then um, as a kind of war zone and you wouldn't be seen unless, I don't know, you had an axe in your head or something. A&E. It was like wetting the bed 
waking up that night, soaked through, my sutures open again and the chest wound hemorrhaging. Pulling on jeans and an overcoat, I called a car to Camberwell and in through the shivering rubber doors presented myself at that Saturday night abattoir of casualty at King's on Denmark Hill. At this front line behind her desk and barred window, the triage nurse was already waving me away till I parted the tweed and showed her what I had going on underneath. Unfashionable, but striking nonetheless, my chest undone like some rare waistcoat with that lace-up front, a black shell, its red wet-look leatherette, those fancy flapping lapels. People misunderstand this next poem, um, which is about a cat. And they think, why can't you write a poem about a cat that is just a nice poem about a cat? (laughs) But um, I'm I'm sorry, it isn't a nice poem about a cat. Um, It's about a cat dying of cancer. Not my own cat, I don't have a cat. But this is one that I happen to... uh, be around in the latter stages. Cat failing. A figment, a thumbed maquette of a cat, some ditched plaything, something brought in from outside, his white fur stiff and grey coming apart at the seams. I study the muzzle of perished rubber, One ear eaten away, his sour body lumped like a bean bag, leaking thinly into a grim towel. I sit and watch the light degrade in his eyes. He tries and fails to climb to his chair, shirks in one corner of the kitchen, cowed, denatured, ceasing to be anything like a cat. And there's a new look in those eyes that refuse to meet mine, and it's the shame of being found out. Just that. And with that loss of face, his face, I see, has turned human. Now, there are very few figures in Greek mythology that have had more violence done to them for a simple mistake than the hunter Acteon. He, um, he was out hunting deer, the story goes, with his dogs, um, and it was noon and he wanted to take a break to find some water and cool down. He made the mistake of... Um, of walking into the sacred pool of the goddess Artemis, who was bathing naked. She was outraged, and his punishment for this error was to be turned into a deer and to be pursued and torn apart by his own dogs. In this very short poem, ten-line poem, which 
sort of poses as a translation but isn't. Um, I imagine the dead Acteon addressing um, his mother. The ghost of Acteon. You are sleeping, mother, and do not know my fate. I wish you could wake and embrace me, much changed as I am, with the horns and the hair of a stag, and only the eyes and voice the same as Acteon. My dogs did what I'd trained them to do, forgive them. If you see my lost bow, break it, bury it with my bones. I know you found no sign of them in the woods, but look again. Look for a freckled coat and not a tunic. Branched antlers, not smooth temples. And longer legs than you remember, that end not in feet, but in hooves. I'm sure, um, I'm sure you're all familiar with um, bothies and shielings, those um, small huts on, on mountains where climbers and hikers can find shelter in bad weather. Um, I've always found these huts absolutely terrifying. Um, so this poem is a kind of um, extended unheimlich manoeuvre. It's called The Shelter. I should never have stayed here in this cold sheiling once the storm passed and the rain had finally eased. I could make out shapes inside, the occasional sound, a muffled crying which I took for wind in the trees, a wasp stuttering there at the windowsill. I listened. What looked like a small red coat was dripping from its wire hanger. There was a shift and rustle coming from the bucket in the corner by the door. I found, inside, a crumpled fist of balled-up paper, slowly uncrinkling. On the hearth, just legible in the warm ash, my name and dates. And above that, in a shard of mirror left in the frame, I caught sight of myself wearing something like a black brooch at the neck. Then I looked more closely, and I saw what it was. Where I'm from... Uh, in the northeast coast of, Aber of Scotland, um, the town of Aberdeen, uh, when I was growing up, it was, a, it was a fishing town, not an oil town. And um, when I was a boy, I used to um, go and talk to the fishermen, the trawlermen, who were, who were not, not really like other adult men because they used to spend three weeks out on those boats and um, they felt at home there but they were impossible on dry land and they were sort of haunted by, by this, um, this condition of being fishermen. There are, um, there are three place names um, mentioned here. Callanish is a great stone circle on Lewis 
in the Outer Hebrides. Um, and Donotter and Drum are two ruined castles on the east coast. And you should know, if you don't know already, I mean, you have plenty, plenty of seals around these coasts, but if you don't know, seals um, sleep in, in the water with their heads up. It's called bottling. The fishermen's farewell. Their long stares mark them apart, eyes gone to sea colors, gray, foam-flecked, and black in the undertow, blue as the blue banners of the mackerel whipping west. On land they are smoke-walkers, where each stone is a standing stone, every circle a stone circle. They would be rumour if they could, in this frozen landscape like a stopped sea, from the great stone keels of Callanish to the walls of Donotter and Drum. They would be less even than rumour, to be ocean stealers, to never throw a shadow, to dream the blank horizon and dread the sight of land. The drink storms through these men, encompasses them till they're all at sea again. Their houses heeled over in the sand, each ruin now a cairn for kites. And down by the quay, past empty pots, unmended nets and boats, this tiny bar where men sleep upright, in their own element, as seals. Now, I was... Uh, I arrived in New York on Halloween. It's unbelievable, the fuss is made of that. And I was outraged because it's a Celtic folk festival um, and uh, there's none of this um, pumpkin malarkey. <laughs> Um, no trick or treating either. Um, all that we ever did was tr try and set fire to each other. Um, anyway, um, in that spirit, uh, I thought I would just read um, a kind of uh, ghost story. It's not really a poem at all. Um, as uh, we're still uh, in the after aftershocks of of Halloween. This is called The Dream House. For ten years I dreamt of the same house until I knew every corridor and cornice, the grain of the wood in every board, the way light fell in different rooms at different times of day. Its lines and angles grew more perfect dream by dream. This summer Walking in woods near a town I'd never been before, I came to this familiar gate, and beyond that saw a path I recognised, and there it was, with a sign, for sale, among larch and pine and sycamore, the dream house. I rang the bell, and when the owner came, I asked him if he'd think it very strange if I showed him round. To the left, I explained, 
is the lounge and panelled library. To the right, the long dining room with the kitchen beyond. As we went upstairs to the four bedrooms with their broad bay windows and blue drapes, I was stopped dead on the landing by a small red door I'd never seen before. It was new, he said, and just put in that day. Downstairs I asked him what he wanted for the house. He named a price so low I think I showed my surprise but said I'd take it. Then he told me why it was cheap, because it was haunted, but said I shouldn't mind, it would be fine for me, since I was the ghost. (laughs) That was a month ago, and now I have the keys. I explore, knowing each room like my own body, until I remember the tiny red door. The keys are all too big, except for one the size of a sparrow's claw. I kneel down and open the lock, and there, in the darkness, is a miniature house. Through the windows, in behind the walls, I see my son is safe indoors. How little he's grown. Look at him. The boy I dreamt had died ten years before. Okay, so before the grim Scottish finale, I'll read a handful of love poems in a a vague and futile attempt to humanise me. Um, This is... um, This is a sonnet. Um, It's... uh, It's about uh, chasing the last of the day's sun. It's, um, It's a love poem trying to stay out of the shadows. Abandon. That moment when the sun ignites the valley and picks out every bud that's greened that afternoon, when birds spill from the trees like shaken sheets, that sudden loosening into beauty, the want in her eyes, her eyes fleet blue, the medals of light on water, the way the water intrigued about her feet, the ocean walking her out into its depth, sea lighting the length of her from the narrow waist to the weight of the breast, the way she lifted her eyes to me and handed me back, simplified. That moment, at the end, knowing the one I had abandoned was myself, edging with the sun around the bay's scoop of rocks, rolling the last gold round the glass. That shelving love, as the sun was lost to us and the sky bruised and the stones grew cold as the shells on the beach at Naxos. And another sonnet. Um, this, uh, this, is, uh, this takes its prompt from one of Chardin's great still lifes, a glass of water and coffee pot, which um, 
you're probably familiar with, uh, it has, as you might expect, a glass of water um, and a brown coffee pot and some heads of garlic. And it's a poem about that painting, but it's also really about where I find myself living now in London. Glass of water and coffee pot. These rooms of wood, of tongue and groove, open out on a garden of whitewashed walls and a maple tree, a new spring bright among the weathered stone and brick. We find things that are old and used, well-made, well-worn, and beautiful because of this. The balance intimate between that glass of water's clarity and light and the pot's grave darkness. An order so luminous and fine, you needn't measure it with a rule. Just look. The papery whiteness of the garlic heads is the same light held in the water glass, the same light lifting a gleam from the blackened coffee pot that somehow managed to make it through to find harmony here on this stone shelf, happiness of the hand and heart to keep its heat and still pour clean and true. Was the last time I saw you, Bob, in that in that uh, little flat? Um, the happier they get, uh, the shorter they become. <laughs> so, um, this eight-line poem takes its title from a small village on the southwest of the Isle of Isla in the Inner Hebrides of Scotland. Portnahaven. We walked the cliff of Portnahaven, listening to the grey seals sing on Orsay and Eileen McConaugh across the little harbour. Were they singing for the love of being here in this place, like us, far from griefs? And were they also singing, as we were, to each other? And absolutely the most cheerful poem of all is tiny. It's called The Key. The door to the walled garden, the place I'd never been, was opened with a simple turn of the key I'd carried with me all these years. So I'll read one more, um, and um, with huge thanks to Bob for inviting me here and for you all for coming out. Um, It would be quite wrong of me to to leave you on such a buoyant, upbeat note. (laughs) So I'm going to finish with um, another one of these uh, invented Scots narratives. This is um, a poem dedicated to John Burnside. It's called At Roan Head. You'd know her house by the drawn blinds, by the cormorants pitched on the boundary wall, the black crosses of their wings hung out to dry. 
You'd tell it by the quicken and the pine that hid it from the sea and from the brief light of the sun, and by Angus the collie lying at the door where he died, a rack of bones like a sprung trap. A fork of barnacle geese came over with that slow squeak of rusty saws, the bitter seas complaining pool and roll, a wicker of pigeons lifting in the wood. She'd had four sons, I knew that well enough, and each one wrong. All born blind, they say, slack-jawed and simple, web-footed, rickety as sticks. Beautiful faces, I'm told, though blank as air. Someone saw them once outside, hurtling down to the shore, chittering like rats, and said they were fine swimmers, but I would have guessed at that. Her husband left her, said they couldn't be his, they were more fish than human, said they were beglamoured, and searched their skin for the showing marks. For years she tended each difficult flame, their tight, flickering bodies. Each night she closed the scales of their eyes to smoor the fire. Until he came again, that last time, thick with drink, saying he'd had enough of this, all this witchery, and made them stand in a row by their beds, twitching. Their hands flapped, herring eyes rolled in their heads. He went along the line, relaxing them one after another with a small knife. It said she goes out every night to lay blankets on the graves to keep them warm. It would put the heart across you, all that grief. There was an otter worrying in the leaves, a heron loping slow over the water when I came at scrake of day back to her door. She'd hung four stones in a necklace, wore Four rings on the hand that led me past the room with four small candles burning, which she called the Room of Rain. Milky smoke poured up from the grate like a waterfall in reverse, and she said my name, and it was the only thing and the last thing that she said. She gave me a skylark's egg, in a bed of frost, gave me twists of my four sons' hair, gave me her husband's head in a wooden box. Then she gave me the sealskin, and I put it on. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.